Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as, my favorite, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, if you like what we do, we could sure use your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon, uh, Fallon Forum website. Uh, become a monthly sponsor if you can. And speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe at Central Iowa's uh, premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary <laughs> Clinic's Facebook page. And speaking of culture, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. You know, you can hear a traditional Irish Session every week in the greater Des Moines area. How's that for the cultural and culinary crossroads of America? Hey, so uh, what have we got for you this week? Well, we're going to be discussing Iowa's looming budget crisis. Uh, we'll do a lot of Iowa talk this week because we've got a former Iowa legislator with us. We'll also be talking about how Iowa kind of has become North America's largest strip mine. And we'll also be talking about how record uh, heat and um, food shortages are kind of coming together across the globe with a particular example of concern in California. But first, it is my pleasure to introduce my former legislative colleague to the program, uh, Bill Witt. Hello, Bill. How are you? Ed, it's good to be back. Bill's in the studio with me, folks. And um, yeah, we got elected the same year. Um, me by several thousand votes, Bill by 17. <laughs> he had one of those districts that could go either way. And well, it had been a Republican district. It had been, For yeah. 14 years. Well, really, that yeah. long? Yeah. Wow. And you squeaked it by. I squeaked it out. And so, logically, you should probably have had a difficult campaign the next time around. But no. Well, it was better. Yeah, I got 56% the next time. Yeah, and then after that, what? Uh, never less than 60. So people kind of grew on uh, You kind of grew on people. I tried. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you did a lot of work on environmental stuff as a lawmaker. That was one area we, we yeah. worked on together. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We had a we did a lot of good work and we were fortunate that at least for uh, much of my term and then yours continued, but we were able to do things on a bipartisan basis. And yeah. uh, we could still work with Republicans or they with us even though they held the majority. And, you know, and I think universally we're hearing from people that the legislative universe has become a much more partisan place. But I want to look at one, one issue in particular that I know you were quite the champion on and really good about getting Republicans to agree to do the right thing, and that's on uh, long-term care. Yeah. Um, that, that's an issue that has always been uh, a challenge here in Iowa because we are, we are an older state. We have that in common with Florida. In addition to having a governor who's pretty right wing, um, we're, we're, we have we have a let's, lot of let's let's let her let's stop hold right on that. there. Hold just, on that. Just don't give her any more ideas. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, really, good point. But um, with uh, with lo with long term care, um, there's been you've, you've expressed some concerns to me that I think are really important to share with people to know exactly what's going on because it's disturbing to see the trend. That's uh, that, that's been um, that we've been following here for a while. Well, uh, you may have. I think a lot of people have noticed that there has been a series of wrongful deaths and uh, serious healthcare violations, uh, serious neglect of residents, and a lot of it still relates to the problem that 
we worked so hard to address. It took us eight years to get the original reforms passed. But um, and what did those reforms accomplish? Well, basically, we said put the money where the care is. Okay. The old system had reimbursed uh, care facilities for all kinds of administrative costs, capital costs, and um, the real shysters in the in the place would simply redefine themselves every few years and rack mm-hmm. up brand new costs, even though nothing had changed hands. I mean, there were real abuses, and so. It took a long time to break the back of that lobby, right? But we we passed reforms again that bi- bipartisanly. Bipartisan. The Democratic Senate. We had a Democratic, Republican but they started in the House, and Republicans got on board very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so I, I remember people like Hubert Hauser, uh, who came back from uh, one of his uh, a weekend in Southwest Iowa, where he'd been to a a constituents meeting, and he, he sat right behind me, and he just came up to my desk, and he said, Bill, I was, uh, I was at a constituent meeting group and a forum, and I asked, I asked this guy, I said, well, how are you doing? You know, just the usual. And he said, well, I'm doing good with my cattle, but I'm making real money on my old people. And Hubert, well, that, that's funny and and horrifying. It's appalling, horrifying. And, and but he would actually say that. Yeah. And wow. Hubert just said to me, "We're going to do this." Wow. And so he probably we, did, he probably didn't tell that constituent that. No. Oh no. <laughs> but you know, it took eight years before we finally broke hmm. that for-profit lobby. Right. And got the reforms passed. So, but, yeah, here's the but. I knew there was going to be a but, here's unfortunately. The, here's and the here's but. why we still have problems. Mm. And that is that there's what we call the base. Okay, and what's the base? And so a nursing home will report its costs. And the basis lags the actual cost by two years. Why is that? Money. Okay. And um, so far, I, mean, I, for, I can't remember the last time that uh, Republicans in the House actually approved a current year cost basis. So if you're reporting your costs for reimbursement through Medicaid, your basis in 2023 mm-hmm is your 2021 cost level. So legislators who support that are just being cheap, but is there a special interest that benefits from that lag time? Not really. So why, okay, hmm. And, <laughs> and you know, the nursing homes, both the for-profit and the not-for-profits, have had to go along with this, essentially because they have no choice. And so, if they want to get any what we call new money, uh, they have to accept this re- this slow mm. lagging mm. ratcheting of their cost base, and of course that results in the end in in, in a lack of care, especially in the for profit realm. Mm. For the not for profits, who are dedicated to the quality of care, it means loss of income. And now, I, I served on the the board of the Western Home, which is one of the finest long term care uh, communities in the whole country they lose an average of $2 million a year in Medicaid shortfalls. Because of the lag time. 
because of the lag time. Wow. And here's the other thing that uh, most people don't realize. This, this whole system has meant a hidden tax on every for, uh, you know, private pay resident uh, in nursing homes because, again, squirreled away in the language of the bill is a clause that says we can assess an additional $1,000 per each private pay resident to help make up for the shortfall. Now, mm. it, it's not nearly enough, of course. And on but they'll, the take, others, they'll take it, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have to. I mean, do you want to lose $2 million or $4 million? Right, right. But the real kicker is on the for-profit side, where even with lagging reimbursements, reimbursements that are always a money loser, the for-profits want to make a profit regardless. Mm. And they do. You know, they skimp as much as possible. And what happens? Well, as Clark Kaufman has been reporting here in Iowa Capital Dispatch, we've had a whole series of wrongful deaths. Mm. We've yeah. had serious, uh, you know, quality of care, of, of neglect, and, you know, serious harm to and residents. And some lawsuits re related and to And some lawsuits well. related, yes. Now, you're, I know your interest in, in elder care is, of course, just in part from your involvement as a legislator, but you've got a, a personal side of this as well, a family member who, yeah. yep. who, um, who basically suffered and died at, at the hands of a yes, she did. inadequate care. Yep. She was a ward of the state for most of her adult life. Your sister, I believe? My sister, Carol. Right. Yep. She died just a little over a year ago. Um, she was in uh, a for-profit facility, and her neglect of care was appalling. And uh, I won't go into too much of it, but she finally was released from the facility because she had a serious urinary tract infection. And when she was admitted to Allen Hospital, both the day shift and the night shift lead nurses came to me, and they were furious at her condition. Mm -hmm. Not only had she, was she f full of an infection because she had not been cared for properly, nor had she received any nutrition. Mm -hmm. She was simply parked in a bed, and nobody came and fed her. Oh, is that because they were understaffed, or they had yeah. just hired people who weren't experienced enough to know? What yeah, to the turnover, the turnover in the the not for profit or the for profit facilities is horrendous. And that's because they don't pay them well. They don't pay them well, right? And they're just as happy to cycle through them and get more people in, mm -hmm. so right. that you know they don't have to build up benefits. Right. Um, so it's it's a nasty game that's being played. And I don't think we'll fix all of it, but certainly underfunding our Medicaid reimbursements for long-term care by $23 million a year. If we simply paid up that extra $23 million, uh, it would help a lot. So why, I, I'm, why won't Republicans do that? You tell me. Well, I don't know. But I, I think, I, I mean, I think we have, I think we have a looming budget issue that uh, is going to come to roost. And I want to get into that, but I, I'm, I'm still trying to understand why, I mean, the, it, 
Obviously, the for-profit nursing home industry has a lot of power. I saw that myself. Mm -hmm. My second term as a state legislator, I was successful at convincing Republicans, like like you were with, with certain elements of elder care. I convinced them that it would be good to establish a pilot program to allow um, Medicare funds to be used for in-home care because mm -hmm. prior to that, it could only be used for care of an elderly person in a, a facility. Yep. I said, well, why not let somebody take care of their, their parent, their 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 spouse at home, and then still receive that that mm -hmm. reimbursement. And uh, so yeah, they said, okay, let's let's try it with a with a target group of forty people, and we passed it unanimously in the House. Went to the Senate, no objections. Went to Governor Branstad, and I heard and I heard this story, and I'm I'm I would bet money on it. The for-profit nursing home lobbyists came in and said, we don't like this. It takes away business, and he vetoed it. He line item vetoed mm -hmm. a unanimous decision by the House and Senate. <clears throat> You know, and so I, so my guess is with this twenty-three million, there's some pressure from the lobby, from the for-profit industry, to not see that money approved. I'm trying to trying to understand why, though. Well, and I don't know that it's so much the for-profit lobby, but it's the fact that it, it relates more deeply to the fact that Republicans have been using this one-time federal money. Mm for COVID relief. You know, Iowa got right. $1,200,000,000 and change. Sure. And they have been using that one-time money to backfill the budget cuts that they're making in ongoing expenses. And so they're trying to squirrel away dollars because in fiscal 2027, according to some excellent sources, yeah. we're going to be facing a budget Whole of twenty two percent. Yeah, and let I, I want I want to talk about that because that's um, there's a lot more a lot of eyes are turned toward budget issues right now because of what's happening at the federal level with the threat of defaulting, mm -hmm. and I think people aren't as aware of what might happen at the state level, and and this may this may or may not be the situation in your state if you're not if you're listening from somewhere other than Iowa, but I think what's happening in Iowa with this. And what you've been tracking, Bill, is pretty important. So I want to take a little time to talk about that. Sure. Um, we've got to run to a short break. I just think, you know, in concluding this this conversation, I just think it's, uh, you know, the elderly, the poor, our children tend to be the constituency groups with the least, least amount of political clout and oftentimes the least amount of success at being able to achieve any kind of justice within our budgeting process. And so I... Uh, I thank you for doing your part to try to make that happen, both as a legislator and, you know, a lot of people, they retire from the state house, they go away. You haven't gone away. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, so, folks, hey, this is Ed Fallon. When we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, state of Iowa's looming budget crisis. Uh, I'll leave with, leave with this uh, little sound clip uh, as we go out to a short break. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, 
artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Family Forum. Again, thanks to our sponsors, including psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, Bill Witt with me today for the duration of the program. Bill, thanks for joining us. So, uh, again, you've you know, you retired from the legislature, you're still paying attention, still advocating and activating for the things you believe in. And uh, one thing you're concerned about is fiscal responsibility. And you were a Democrat. Yeah. I thought, I, thought, I thought Republicans were the party of fiscal responsibility. No, they're tax cut and spend. Tax cut and spend. That's right. I thought we were the, uh, I thought Democrats that's what were they, the, uh, That's what they always try to do. Label. Yeah. At least we would tax and spend. They tax cut and spend. But tax cut and spend, what do you do? Well, you, you, you borrow against the future. Right. So, But right now they're talking about, the, I mean, the budget looks pretty good right now in Iowa, what, $8 billion or so. But a lot of that, as you pointed out earlier in the program, is, um, is in part due to significant influx of money from the feds due to COVID-19. Right. We're, so and, and that's going to run out. That's going to run out. By, so is that is that well, is that why is that a big deal? Well, you know, a billion two hundred million dollars. You keep keep racking that up, and as Edward Dirksen said, sooner or later it turns into real money. Um, so aren't they? I mean, I presume someone's preparing for this. Well, I think the Republicans are in their own way, really? knowing that they've essentially taken a billion two hundred million dollars of federal COVID relief money a one-time grant, right. they're spending it now on ongoing budgetary expenses. Mm-hmm. In fiscal 27, according to... 2027? 2027, okay. that's right. According to a very reliable source who must remain nameless, alas, but <laughs> a, a, a genuine, reliable source, all of that money is going to be gone. And we're going to be looking at a 22 to 23 percent gap, a hole in our state budget that we've been plugging up with one-time money. I, I would think that even a you wouldn't even need a reliable inside source to determine that. I mean, it's just a matter of when you've got an eight billion dollar budget and you're, you know, and you've got I don't know how many years uh, what the, the the COVID money is over the course of what five years? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, you spread that out. That's like. Like a quarter million, million a year, a quarter more. million, yeah. 
quarter billion. A quarter yeah. billion a year. And so that adds up. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, you're going to run out. Yep. I mean, yeah. So how do you how do you not forecast disaster unless there's some intentionality about planning for the transition? Well, and think about it. In you know, fiscal 2026 20, and 27, all of these massive tax cuts will be in full effect. These are the state tax the cuts. The state tax right. cuts. We're looking at federal tax cuts as well. That, that's yeah. yeah. That's another kettle. But, right. Uh, and then you look at the private school voucher program. Just passed this year. Just passed this year. But again, it's going to hit with full force mm-hmm. in 26 and 27. Right. Now, the official estimate, and you know how that works too. I mean, when you run the government, you go to the fiscal agency and you say, these are the assumptions I want you to use in calculating these numbers. And these are assumptions I don't want you to use. Well, but I mean, does, and the, fi- so, wait, does the Fiscal Bureau always abide by that? I mean, I, the Fiscal Bureau is noted the, for being pretty fair and nonpartisan. But it's, it always comes down to the allowable assumptions. What are the parameters that they do their calculations within? But you, you, the, 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 the governor can tell in a very partisan way the Fiscal Bureau not to consider certain assumptions that might be obvious to somebody doing We did the it as analysis. legislators. We could do it as legislators. Yeah, but did, and they, did they listen to anybody? Did yeah, they? they did. Okay. I was and, <laughs> you know, here's, here's the thing. Um, I've been saying ever since they, they you know, developed this uh, private school voucher plan mm-hmm. that they were underestimating the cost by $100 million a year. Based on what? based upon behavior, how, okay, when a plan first begins, you're going to see, you know, this number of families and this many students going into private schools and collecting these vouchers. Small batches, right? Right. But it's going to accelerate over time. There will be a number of things that will affect it. One will be the declining quality of Public schools because the, because money is coming out to because support they're this, losing yeah. they're losing that seventy six hundred dollars that's going into the private school now, so and, there's and, a and, there's a direct transfer and, and to be clear every student who leaves the public school for a private school seven thousand six hundred dollars follows that student follows that student exactly right and that's no longer available to it's the public no school. longer available to the public school two in addition to declining enrollments in public schools. Public schools will always have to take the special needs students whose costs are higher than than the traditional student. Private schools don't have to take them, and they won't. They're not going to take these special needs kids. And there's there's a lot of special needs kids out there. There are. And so you're going to, the public schools are going to be incurring greater costs per pupil on those who remain enrolled with them. Uh, so you're going to be seeing, I think, once this thing really starts to take effect, you're going to see more of a shift. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're going to see increased capital costs for the public schools. And again, there's really no cap on the amount of money the state will spend for private vouchers. It's the cap is per student, seven thousand six hundred per student. Mm-hmm. But if uh, 
If it's like down, yeah. I mean, it's like I, the Iowa tuition program for basically voucher private vouchers yeah. for private college students. Do you, do you happen to know, Bill, how many students are in Iowa's K through twelve system? Uh, I knew that. I can't. I had. I'd look yeah. that up. I, I, but what if, what if, what if, what if even 20, 30, 40, say 50% of the students in public schools now decide, what if their parents decide, hey, I, I'm going to take that 7600 bucks and send them somewhere else? Yeah. I well, mean, that's going to destroy public education. There's, yes, there's, it will. There'll be nothing left to it. Or what will be left is exactly what, what you just described. You know, the, you know yeah. the, the baby birchers nationwide want to see. They want baby to see birchers. the baby mean birchers. Young George, young. Well, uh, you know, John Birchers. Yeah, the the Johnny the, Birchers. Yeah. The the guys, the guys who were infuriated after Barry Goldwater's debacle in 1964, and vowed to take over this country, and they've been executing a 60-year-long hostile business takeover of the United States. Well, I, admire the, I admire their patience and perseverance. Well, you don't get rich. Just Most, you, most people just don't go out and win the lottery, you know? Right. You've got to be conniving and ruthless. And, and you know, if you're going to make the big bucks like Fred Koch did with the Russians back in the 30s and 40s, and then you know turned $300 million over to Charles and David, who in turn have parlayed that into billions, and we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about yeah, this in the environmental sure. pollution segment to yeah. come, but you know, these folks. So, so they, um, so this, is, again, this has been, this is, and it's, it's again, on paper. Again, 2027, 2027. The, the, um, so back to back to my point. I looked at the assumptions and I just tweaked the percentages a little bit, figuring in that there was going to be an acceleration factor. And that's how I came up with another hundred million dollars over the governor's and, official and, estimate. And an acceleration of the use of the uh, of the voucher the voucher program for students. Right. Okay. And I think you'll also see uh, right now already the the private schools are raising their tuition rates in anticipation of this money, which will in turn create more pressure, political pressure, to increase the voucher, the allowable voucher amount. So, so the, and you're going to see these private schools looking for capital, for okay. expansion. and From the state. From the state. Yeah. So again, the... Um, so seven thousand six hundred bucks per student. That that that's what's that? Is that based on the estimated amount that it costs to fund a student in the public school system? More or less, okay. yeah. So, but if, so if your private school is increasing the amount that they're charging per student, then that seven thousand six hundred bucks won't cover it, and the parent will be expected to kick in the balance. Correct. Possibly. Until. The state says, oh, look, we didn't do enough. We'll have we to didn't increase do it. enough. Okay. That's right. So you see that coming up We next have year? needier families who want to take advantage so, of this wonderful opportunity. Right. So that'll come up next year. They'll increase it to 8000 No, I, I don't look for it for at least a couple more years. Okay. But I'd before say the 2027 bad crash. Before the 2027, yeah, crash. Call it a crash, maybe. Yeah. Again, that's when the COVID money will run out. Yeah. And, and, the, and it's important to say, and the new tax cuts will... Fully kick in. Fully kick in. I mean, it doesn't take rocket scientists, of which I qualify as a non-rocket scientist. Oh, really? Yes. It doesn't yeah, take... You, it, you astonish me. No, I shouldn't. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Math, never my forte, but this is an easy one, folks. You, you cut money out of the budget with tax cuts. Yeah. You end a stream of money that is significant, like a quarter of a billion a year. You increase the amount of money you're spending 
on privatizing education, what I mean, what what do you do? How do they? How will we? Presuming Republicans still control everything yeah. in twenty twenty seven, which I think unfortunately Probably they very well are likely to do. Yeah. What? How are they going to well, respond? And, and don't forget Your the property ball. tax shifts. Oh sure. That okay. are going to impact counties and local and municipalities, but also then. Think about how the income tax cuts have been phased. Okay, so first in, greatest benefit goes to the rich. Woohoo! Last in, least benefit goes to the poor. You familiar with the concept? Those, those whiners. Last in, Tell first them to go out. out and get a job. Last in, first out. Yeah. You know that one? That's yeah. going to happen. What about the biblical verse about the rich, the, the poor shall be? Anyway, yeah. Jesus, get, you mean that, that guy? Yeah, you that know, guy. That, that socialist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Commie socialist? I know, Christian? I know. Yeah. I know, I know. That's, well, he wasn't yeah. Christian. He was Jewish. Well, he was Jewish. I know. <laughs> I know. But anyway, but back to the point. The so, narrative. So, you, so you've got this um, confluence of chaos. Yeah. Of fiscal chaos. Yeah. And, and they're going to do what? They're going to... I don't know. I know. But I'm, sh- I'm sure, I figured it out. I'm sure the tax cuts for the poor are going to go away. And the tax cuts for the middle class will be phased out. And we'll only have, you know, our, our plutocrats. Yeah. But the, the uh, tax cuts for benefit. the poor, that's not, the tax cuts for the poor aren't a very big pot. No. I'm not confident they can, they can, I'm not confident they can get rid of the tax cuts for the middle class without incurring so much voter pushback that they realize they won't be able to pull that off. But what, what, they, what they will continue to do, I think, Bill, is to eviscerate public education. I mean, public education is the biggest chunk of state funding. Yep. And, and they, they've, they've taken a huge bite out of it now. Yep. And, well, they'll, they'll, and don't forget privatization of social services. Sure. Because, again, by privatizing Medicaid, we increase the payout to stockholders by 100 million public dollars. Mm, right. Remember that those that wasteful old Department of Human Services administration ran at about four percent of total budget costs. The administrative costs. The administrative yeah, costs, right. and they're more than double that now. Yeah, uh, under private management. Yeah, because that's which so is more efficient. efficient. That's right. Boy, jinx. Um, <laughs> so efficient, you know. I mean, that's that's the argument all the time. You know, oh, let's yeah. run, let's run government like a business. And I, my favorite response is, you mean like the Exxon Valdez? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, there's plenty more examples, and that's one right there. Taking a public service through, you know, and again, I, it, it certainly wasn't run run perfectly. There were all, all kinds of mistakes. Sure and there were. Bureaucratic hurdles. But bottom line, when it comes to fiscal management, 4% overhead versus 8% under private management. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and that's all public money going into private pockets. So, um, Bill, I would not be surprised to see uh, in 2027 Republicans trying to balance the budget by further privatization of further sectors of our society. Take prisons, for example. Um, I'll bet the Republicans could make an argument for, hey, we could save money on all this money we're spending on these low lives in prison mm-hmm. by privatizing the whole thing. I mean, I don't know how much that would... I don't know how much that might pan out in terms of what they might save. Yeah, they probably won't save anything in the long run, and it'll certainly be. I and mean, we've seen what's happened with private prisons around well, the country. Well, even look at what they've done to the the crime victims' compensation fund. They're raiding that. Tell us about that. Well, 
you know, part of the administrative and restitutional cost, if you're convicted of a crime against someone, is that, you know, you pay damages in. Right. And um, so that fund is supposedly used to help compensate for the harm you've caused your victims. Well, the Republicans were doing it occasionally when we were in the legislature, and they're doing it again now. They're pulling money out of the Crime Victims Compensation Fund to spend on other things. Is it that big of a pool of money? I don't know what it is now, mm. uh, again, but it's several million dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, I think it's in the 18, 19 million dollar range. And if you keep nickel and diming like that, as again, as Everett Dirksen mm. said, pretty soon you're talking real money. Yeah, and in this case, you're talking about victims not being compensated for the harm done to them yep. by those who have been prosecuted and ended up in prison. Yeah. Okay, well, um, you might have thought that by now Bill and I have done enough whining, but you were, you would be wrong. You ain't, you ain't heard it yet. <laughs> we're, we're getting down. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have more to whine about, and uh, we, we, we whine with intention. We, we whine because there are things that need to be challenged. Uh, yeah, the lack of appropriate elder care in the state, the uh, horrible mismanagement of our finances, the decimation of public education, and yes, uh, Iowa is indeed becoming, uh, well, I think it already is the largest strip mine in the world. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means, it means it's a reference to our soil, but it's more than that. Folks, Ed Fallon with you, Bill Witt, my honorable guest today in the studio. We've got to take a short break. We'll be back in a, in a minute or two, and I want to leave you with this, uh, this little clip as we go out. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Family Forum. Thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. 
The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, long-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, so Bill, uh, you I have... think I think I should just add a little disclaimer here too, as, as is required in journalism. I am a monthly supporter of Ed's program by uh, automatic contribution through my credit card. And I would encourage any of you to think about doing the same. If you want to keep this service, this public informational service available, um, you know, think about, think about making a regular donation, a sus be a sustaining contributor to the Fallon Forum. Now, and I, I will also say that I, I pull no punches. I say it the way I see it. And um, if, if you like that kind of coverage, think about it. Make, be a sustaining contributor. There might be two or three of us, I'm told. Maybe more. I don't know. But so I, hope, I hope your numbers will grow. Thank you, Bill. So, so, Bill, you have referred to uh, Iowa as North America's largest strip mine, mm -hmm. and that's um, that doesn't sound very good. Nope. And you know, it, it came to me years ago when David Brower, the, the great environmentalist, was here in Iowa to give some presentations, and I was driving him around the, the central Iowa area. It was in the fall, and he said, "What are those clouds? Is that smoke on the horizon?" And I said. That's the harvest. That's ah. dust. But I said, you know, we are Iowa's, Iowa is North America's biggest strip mine. Maybe the shallowest, but it's certainly the broadest. <laughs> and the shallowest. <laughs> we, we send soil to the Gulf of Mexico by the millions of tons. Well, in, the, in, the, in the example you cited, that's soil we sent, we're sending airborne yep. probably toward Illinois. And it's also, of course, the soil that runs through the tile drains and out into the ditches and eventually winds up fanning out into the Gulf of Mexico. Creating a dead zone. And creating a huge dead zone. I said it on this program, Bill. I'll say it again. I hope Louisiana sues Iowa. I, I hate to say that. I mean, gosh, that's like saying something horrible about your, your hometown, your home state. But uh, we deserve to be sued. <laughs> we, 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 are, we are not only wasting our own most precious resource. Yes, we are. We're destroying people's lives downstream by doing it. Yep. So I see what you mean. We're the world's largest strip mine, meaning that the value within a particular place of earth is being extracted. You think of strip mines, you think of, you think of a big excavation where some mineral or, or valuable product is being, yeah. being removed. And you don't think of that when you hear it, when you think about soil erosion, because it happens so slowly, so yeah, gradually, but so but imperceptibly. About, but, you know, people are always looking at things like cobalt or copper, but isn't soil fertility the basis of everything we eat? Mm. I mean, you can't eat your cell phone. You're not, you know, you're not gonna. I know people who've tried. You're but not, anyway. you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna eat the lithium or the cobalt or any of the precious rare earth metals. 
et cetera, et cetera, that go into that. But, you know, we, can, we know that, you know, in many places in Iowa, we've lost over a foot of topsoil. And in some places, it's all gone. Yeah, especially on the hilltops. Yeah. Yeah. And there you're talking about water erosion, but, but airborne erosion as well. Yeah. yeah. And then we pollute what we wash down the, the tile drains. So. But alas, Bill, methinks that, uh, that uh, Iowa being a strip mine and losing its soil is not the only way in which we are being mined and no. colonized. Well, we're, we are a vast factory floor as well. You know, the, the corn that we produce goes mostly for industrial feedstocks. Or ethanol. Or ethanol, yep. Uh, and you know, we're being colonized culturally and economically too. If, if you look at what's going on in the Iowa legislature under Republican domination, much the same is going on in many other Republican-controlled states. And this brings us back to this idea of, of being colonized by people who have been out to get America ever since Barry Goldwater's 1964 debacle. Who's out to get America other than well, I mean, Vladimir Putin? And... Well, Vladimir Putin, certainly, but think about the Koch brothers, their father Fred. So was... uh, Americans out to get America. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the DeJoys and, you know, the, all of these uber-rich, these toxically rich multi-billionaires have been, they've had it in for democracy ever since Theodore Roosevelt. Because it gets in the way of profits. It gets in the way of profits, mm -hmm. absolutely. It gets in the way of their doing what they darn well want to do. Yeah. And, you know, Fred Koch was the guy who, uh, after, after uh, the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, essentially put up millions of dollars to begin campaigning for states' rights, which, of course, is shorthand for what? Discrimination. Yeah. Well, but only it's, it's, it's selective state rights. Yeah. 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 If, if, if you want to, if you're in California and you want to require that uh, pigs be raised in a certain age, uh, mm -hmm. in a certain way, then that's not acceptable. No, no. that's <laughs> not right. acceptable. So, um, the, again, I, I see I see our soil going downstream. That's that's um, if you're paying attention, it's not hard to miss that. I see um, our hogs being shipped overseas. Uh, now we're up to what 33 million hogs per year in Iowa. It's, it's, that's like 10 hogs for every human being, or 11, whatever. Well, yeah, or 11. I guess 11 hogs for every human being in Iowa. And yeah. and by the way, hogs produce two point two and a half times as much waste as an average human being. Yes, that's a lot of manure and unregulated. Mm -hmm. a, a minimally regulated, minimally regulated, minimally regulated. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, and then a, it's hard to know how exactly how much, but I'm guessing at least 25% of Iowa's hog production is going overseas. Probably, mm -hmm. probably more than that. Probably. But uh, so there's another way we're being, you know, the colonization of Iowa is leading to this extraction of wealth from our state. Uh, you know, and part of the problem, of course, when you put up these these big hog confinements, nobody wants to live downwind from that. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we used to have... Although uh, there are technologies that can be applied that will neutralize a lot of the, the toxicity of the waste and the smell. But they're more costly. 
Sure. They cut into profits. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and again, the, the way the system is set up, I mean, the largest hog, produce, hog processor in the U.S. is Smithfield, owned by China. China. <laughs> I mean, so uh, how, how do you not see that as colonization, as extraction, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know why any politician, Republican or Democrat, would feel good about allowing that to happen. Well, why do so many... Uh, Republican politicians feel so good about Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban. You mean the Hungarian... Uh, yeah, the Hungarian dictator yes. who's, who's showing us a new way of democracy. Well, he's, uh, he's participated in, in CPAC uh, meetings. Well, they've, they've gone to him. They've gone to him, that's right. Yeah, twice, two years so in that, a row. Okay, so Bill, answer your question. Why, why, would, uh, why would some or many, uh, what would you say, some or many on the political right be enamored with... Uh, with dictators like Orban and Putin. Yeah, it's it's amazing what happens, how patriotism is being redefined, isn't so it? So you this is back to your comment about the Koch brothers who really just want government to get out of the way so they can make as much money as possible. Yeah. And that would be the motive in this case as well among well, you know politicians who may not be anywhere near as wealthy as the Koch brothers, but dream you know, of it. Well and and then of course you know, Rupert Murdoch is making tons of money, poisoning our minds, poisoning our social values, you know. Settling lawsuits. Well, settling lawsuits, too. But, I mean, he paid that out of petty cash. Mm-hmm. You know, they had that cash on hand. And, um, you know, I mean, if we want to go, I go back to Ronald Reagan, who, who allowed... Rupert Murdoch to come to this country, emigrate, become a permanent resident and a U.S. citizen in one year. Ronald Reagan, who then, for Rupert Murdoch's great convenience, put an end to the fairness doctrine in in broadcasting so that, you know, you can spew whatever you want and there's no requirement that anyone can that you have right. to give airtime to that, anyone to answer you that hum happened under the FCC during Reagan's that first was during term, Reagan's time too but but you know and, the uh, actually during his second term but the uh, the other problem with the with with, with radio broadcast is was uh, attributed to Bill Clinton when mm-hmm. he when he signed the telecommunications act in 1996 which allowed these big corporations to own multiple signals in one market yep you know, and so that's why that's why if you're catching this program on a community-owned station, it's probably a station with a pretty small signal because even though this program got its start on a big station because this happened to be a big station that was owned by a smaller big corporation, <laughs> <laughs> and the the local the, the general manager was interested in having some balance, so they had um they had 21 hours a day of conservative talk and three hours a day no four sorry four hours a day of um. Of, um, there they are, less, less, squeezing less, that 25-hour workday out of the people. <laughs> well, okay. I, no, I misspoke. 22 hours a day. You did say your math is not your strong But um, it's, not, it's not so bad that I don't, don't know how many hours are in a day. 20 hours <laughs> of right-wing okay. talk. Mike Savage, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck. Uh, they didn't have Rush Limbaugh. But then there was me and a guy named Bradshaw made up the other four hours. Yeah, there but you once, once a bigger station bought that out, we were gone, you know. So, so much for fairness, so much for balance, so much for, you know, allowing any kind of... And, and look, I don't know whether you listen to right-wing radio, Bill, but it is 
it, 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 I, I do it so you don't have to. But trust me, it is they they advertise themselves as the voice of the Republican Party. Hmm, sure. They say we when they talk about Republicans. And Republicans advertise themselves as the voice of Fox. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway. back to Iowa as a strip mine. Well, and just, just back to this point. I mean, earlier in your last sign-off, you talked about whining. But, you know, Jim Hightower. I whined about whining. Yeah. I mean, if people do not, like Jim Hightower, for example. A former, bring, former Secretary of Ag in Texas. Yes. Yep. If, if we don't bring this out, I mean, what do people have to, people with goodwill and intelligence and, and you know, civil values have to work with. And you know, so I hope that folks listening to this are going to say, dang, are we really looking at a budget mess like that? Are we really looking at the suffering of people of our elderly and mentally ill people in long-term care facilities? Mm. You know, why don't we care about these things? What can we do? You know the other the other uh, loss we're seeing through the strip mining of Iowa is our young people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many young people have said to me, you know, Iowa, it's not a place I want to be anymore. Um, and un- yeah. unfortunately, a, a lot of people who live in the urban centers of the state, which the few the few urban centers there are, which tend to be more vote more democratic, mm-hmm. they have this horrible misconception of rural people as. As, as as bigoted, as angry, as hateful, and they're not. I, I know plenty mm-hmm. of I, I know I know so many rural people, and almost none of them fit that description. Yeah. Okay. There's a couple, but uh, you know, almost none of them fit that description. And there's a couple urban people who fit that description as well. But sure. but you know, I I wish I wish um. We would not self-strip mine our people. <laughs> I mean, you know, yep. things things are horrible. If you're a public school teacher, if you're trans, if you've got anybody in your family who is trans, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, our prison system. If you've got a family member in prison, you're probably not happy. Yeah. As you noted, if you've got a family member in long-term care, that's probably not going real it, well. It may or may not be going real it well, but there's a good on, chance of it not it going well. It depends on your ability to pay. Yes, yeah, and, and the facility, private in particular, is... Uh, and, you know, we can get into Probably. this, too. I mean, here we are in, in this rich agricultural state, which we've mostly turned into industrial agriculture. And, you know, our food banks, as, yeah. as poverty increases, our food banks are, are under terrific pressure. And, you know, our church has a, a food pantry. And this legislature cut funding for the food banks. Yeah. Why? Why? And so what's happening? Well, again, a lot of members of our church are going to places, you know, like the, I'll, I won't mention any, I'll just say those, those big box places. And, you know, we're buying food by the case to donate to our food pantries. Well, we're taxing ourselves for that. Mm. And there's not enough of us to really make up the difference. I would just say, you know, yeah, sure, we've been whining because there are things that are worth whining about and they're worth pointing out. But I'm protesting. Protesting, that's a good way to put it. But don't, don't, don't give up on your home, whether it's Iowa or somewhere else. If it's, if it's struggling, be part of the solution. Don't, don't run away. Be part of what it takes to change it, to bring it back to sanity, to put the right kinds of people in place, to make the right kind of laws and policies 
that can assure you've got a more just and sustainable community and a nice future going forward. Bill, thanks Absolutely. for joining us. Absolutely. Fist bump, Ed. Okay, boom. There you, go. You're, there you go. An audio fist bump. Audio fist it. bump. Hey, Bill, thanks for joining. Again, Bill Witt, my guest, my former legislative colleague, got elected the same year as I did. Had a little more, little more sense than me. Got out four years earlier. <laughs> Ed's the guy who once tried to convince me to sleep on his front porch in the wintertime. Yeah, well. Rent, rent his front porch from him, folks. To his, to Bill's credit, he did not fall <laughs> I, for it. I didn't fall for it. Anyway. Hey, uh, thanks. And I'll leave you with this, uh, this little uh, tune about our environment and planet as we go out. Every thread of creation is held in position by still other strands of things living. In an earthly tapestry hung from the skyline of smoldering cities, so gray and so vulgar as not to be satisfied with their own negativity. But needing to touch all the living as well. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, now with me in the studio. Boy, I was so glad to get rid of that Bill Wood. He was such a pest, such a I, downer. Uh, I was going to say nice fellow. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> can't, wait to, can't wait to What, chat what do you have for us for good news? Oh, wait a minute. We're talking about it's, climate change. Yeah, Sorry. let's whine. <laughs> okay, let's whine, whine some more. It's going to sound a little bit like whining, but actually we want to talk about a May 17th statement by the World Meteorological Organization, the, M, uh, the WMO, uh, about the possibility that although 2016 was the hottest year on record, there's a prediction in the next five years, 98% chance that one of those years will beat that record. And that's something to do with El Nino as well, but again, with global car, yes. you know, global greenhouse gas emissions right. continuing to rise. But they're expecting more frequent yeah. five-year periods where we're going to be 
continuing to break records. In addition, averages uh, of over all five years will most likely, in other words, 66% chance, be the warmest five-year period on record. Wow. Um, so, you know, Ed, we had trouble growing potatoes last year, and you've done a lot of research, and our little Irish hearts can't live without our potatoes. <laughs> and little you, Irish you, bellies you discovered that it's pretty much the excessive heat. Yeah, and we're going to try to beat that by crazy mulching, uh, lots mm-hmm. of mulch around those plants. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain points at which your plants, some plants like tomatoes, don't pollinate when it gets too hot. Right. Right. And, and tomatoes, tomatoes the potato, are, potatoes don't produce good tubers when it gets too hot. Right. The nightshades are struggling. Yeah. Um, so what's this going to look like? Well, I mean, it, it's going to look pretty pretty tricky for a lot of things. We're going to focus on the food security part of that. Of course, longer growing seasons, more temperate weather can uh, be good for some growing spaces and places in some years, but that doesn't mean that overall it's not going to be pretty horrific right. if you think uh, countrywide and worldwide. Well, it's not just heat either. I mean, I look, looking at what's happening in California right now, what they you know they always have to come up with new terms instead of like really really heavy rain. It's now what a like a like an atmospheric river. It's called. Mm-hmm. Oh, golly, <laughs> I don't know. I, I you know. Really heavy rain works for me, but okay. Mm-hmm. Atmospheric rivers happened all over California, um, relieving the drought, which was great. But now look at the conditions they've created. Right. You know, plant. I mean, the almond almond trees are are experiencing this this pathogen, which hardly ever is a problem in California. Almond trees have been asking for it with all the water they use in the <laughs> well, first place, but. But also the, the heat and the excessive warming of the earth isn't just about the temperature. Right. It it can cause the fires, as you've said. It can cause more severe so- storms. That leads to property and habitat destruction. Um, you know, we we're not just talking about the food that we can grow. What about the food that people, uh, if they're if they hunt for their food, uh, you know, the forests are decimated and things like that. Uh, well, fruit producing are... trees, nut producing yeah. trees. The oceans, Big right? Part, yeah. Right? Habitat destruction, supply chain issues, like we saw in the derecho a few years back. So, to me, this is an argument for shifting away from doing the wrong thing as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's, I know that people say, well, you can't shift too fast from fossil fuels or we'll have an economic collapse. But, you know, we're going to, we're, we're seeing a collapse coming anyhow if we don't get our act together. But I think, regardless, we need to, we need to figure out how to adapt. Well, yeah, I mean, this this is uh, indicating that we are reaching the 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 top numbers that we can reach before we go over the 1.5 degree threshold, Celsius degree uh, temperature increase threshold yeah. set by which is 2.7 the, Fahrenheit. 2.7 Fahrenheit. Yeah. Um, and we we're going to possibly break that this uh, this coming five years, mm-hmm. and then more frequent chances of it in the future. And that means we just have to really do what uh, we're supposed to be doing as a country and as a world. People have all agreed to do these things, to cut f- use of fossil fuels, cut emissions, and it's not happening. Mm-hmm. So we've yeah. got to get on it. Um, we've got uh, the EPA has also noted that changes in agricultural productivity are going to be really severe with the climate change um, they're talking about impacts to soil and water resources, and they're talking about health challenges to agricultural workers and livestock. Well, sure, That's another know. issue that yeah. people, you know, they don't really think about that, but it's very connected. And that, that speaks to supply chain as well. 
Well, I, I know that obviously if you have a drought, uh, you, you, we've seen the very iconic and disturbing photographs from parts of Africa where extended multi-year drought is, mm-hmm. you know, has, you, you, and what you're left with is animals lying, you know, dead on the uh, on the ground and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um. These issues snowball. They, they snowball. snowball. So we we've got to localize. We've got to do more foodscaping. People need to uh, just just yeah, kind of depend on each other to to help solve the problem. Bottom line is the the five year heat warning should be a wake up call. Mm-hmm. Anyway, hey Kathy, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks to my uh, guest today, former state representative Bill Witt. Thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman. Kathy Burns and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Thanks again, folks. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.